Selling a little or a lot? Shopify helps you do your thing however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage. All the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage. Shopify is there to help you grow. Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout. 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Get a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash work. Shopify.com slash work. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, bit to get 30, bit to get 20, 20, 20, bit to get 20, 20, bit to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Even on a budget, quality is non-negotiable. That's why Quinn's is the place to score high-end essentials at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Get your hands on buttery soft cashmere sweaters from just 60 bucks, Italian leather jackets, and so much more. And the best part about Quince? They exclusively partner with factories committed to safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Elevate your style without the elevated price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns. Welcome everyone to the Really 007 podcast for another look at the Bond books. And this time we're looking at books about Bond, not the Fleming novels themselves. But we've actually got the author with us, and he's a key author of discussing not just Bond films, but cinema and other media as well. We've got Mark Edlitz with us. So welcome to the show, Mark. Hello. Uh, very, very happy to be here. Thank you for having me. We're happy to have you, Mark, and it's been it's been a long time coming, but we're we're finally ready to chat. In fact, <laughs> it's been so long that Mark has written a book, I think, since the last time <laughs> we might have tried to do this. That shows you just how prolific the guy is and how committed he is to to these topics. Yeah, so there are various places you can listen to our podcast. We're on YouTube, iTunes, and Spotify, and you can actually go on our Pod Dojo Network website and listen to us there. Thank you for sharing, rating, and recommending our episodes. We're also on social media, so you can find us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Don't think we're on threads yet, but that might be one to come. Anyway, special shout-out tonight to Mr. Steve Correnteng, who is a huge fan of James Bond, and particularly the Timothy Dalton films, which I'm sure we'll get on to talk about, because there's a large section of one of Mark's books about the unmade Dalton films. Tonight with me, I'm joined by regular contributor John. John Kell, licensed to Kell. Good evening, sir. Good evening, Tom. Good evening, Mark. Good evening, Steve. Great to be here. Rob. Well, hello there. And I've also got another regular contributor, Mr. Steve Clamp. Good evening, Steve. I've been promoted to regular contributor now. I feel special. Uh, I think you've got to be, haven't you? Friend <laughs> of the show. I know there's various titles you could have. But normally it's Steve is the one still having his meal, but John this time is still trying to finish it before we get anyway. Not to embarrass him further, we will uh, we will crack on. Yeah, it's great to have you, Mark. Just a sort of bit of background to yourself. How did you get into the world of writing, first of all? I think I was looking for something to do. Uh, (laughs) 
I went I went to film school and I made a, a movie or two. I made a documentary. I made a narrative feature film that I wrote and directed. And I also made a documentary on extreme Star Wars fans called Jedi Junkies. And I was thinking of something to do next that wouldn't require other people's permission. Meaning when you make a film, there's a lot of, it, it, it's expensive. It's, uh, you're doing it with, with a lot of people and it takes a long time, no matter how you do it, um, at least in my experience. So I was looking for something to do that I could sort of manage on my own. And the first book I wrote is called How to Be a Superhero. And that's interviews with actors who have played superheroes over the past 60 or 70 years. So that's interviews with your various Batman and Superman and Wonder Woman and the Hulks and the Daredevils and so on. And for that, I interviewed the people you wouldn't necessarily expect for (laughs) some of these, Uh, like the TV Spider-Man, Nicholas Hammond from the 70s. Adam West from the 60s. Whoa. (laughs) (laughs) All right, here we go. (laughs) Kevin Conroy, the Batman from the animated series. Oh, yes. So I tried to go and find people whose stories weren't necessarily being told in other ways. That took a ridiculously amount of time. I I, I wrote that over a 10-year period. I mean, I was doing other things with my life, uh, but... (laughs) But from the concept to publication, it was 10 years. And then while writing that book, How to Be a Superhero, I squeezed in James Bond. And I argued that James Bond is sort of like a superhero. He wears a tux instead of a cape. I don't know if I completely believe it, but I really wanted to write about James Bond. And <laughs> yeah. I figured no one was around to stop me. Yeah. <laughs> so, so then I wrote... Um, then I wrote a book about... Then I realized I wanted to write about James Bond. So I wrote a book that became to be known as The Many Lives of James Bond. And when I handed that into my publisher, it was going to be something like 200,000 words, and they wanted 80,000, and they eventually gave me 100,000. But there was so much material and so much story that I had to really refine what I wanted for that book, Many Lives of James Bond. Mm. And what that book became was interviews with creatives in the James Bond movies and books, uh, video games as well, as well as interviews with actors who have played James Bond. So in addition to Roger Moore and George Lazenby, I I also interviewed uh, the the Bond of the radio, the Bond of the video games, the Bond of the TV, James Bond Jr. Yeah, yeah, still counts. It it Mm -hmm. absolutely counts. And there's a lot of people who play James Bond. I mean, I know that, when I first think of James Bond, I think of the movie Bond. But I think it's also interesting that there's so many other people who have, quote unquote, officially played James Bond in various professional capacities. Yeah. You spoke to Toby Stevens. I spoke to him for my second book. He was one of those people that I couldn't, that, that I wanted to speak for Bond for radio, but wasn't able to get him in that book. And so I, I squeezed him into the second one. Yeah. <laughs> uh, but I did uh, speak to the the Bond actor who played Bond in the you, know, you Only Live Twice radio show. Wow. And I also found out more about Bob Holness, who played James oh, Bond yeah. In, yeah. in Moonraker. See, that, that thing about Moonraker, Bob Holness's Moonraker, is that it never made any sense to me that there was this odd floating James Bond story that was recorded in South Africa in, in, in the 1950s. And we didn't even have a date. 
But we did know that Bob Holness, uh, who, who was known to many as a game show host, yeah. Oh, yeah. Uh, and I was able to find out um, a lot about his experience playing it, and as well as I was able to produce the contract that he signed wow. to play the role, which included the dates of the performance, his rehearsal schedule, how much he was paid, which wasn't a lot. But it was it was important to me uh, to provide some sort of context and understanding of what was going on there. Yeah, as, as you might know, Mark, I, I work in TV over here in Britain and the station I work for uh, is ITV Central. And that is who used to make the game show that Bob Holness was very... Oh, yeah. We've actually got a, an image of it on the wall at work. Blockbusters oh. is what I'm doing for in this country. So it was probably, it was years after, you know, we'd all seen him on the TV uh, in, in the 80s that word started to get around that he had actually played James Bond. And he had a great voice for it, actually. He had a, yeah. He's got one of those, you know, almost, not quite Roger Moore, but you no, know, it's great depth in his voice. Uh, but of course, none of us thought of him as an actor here. We all just knew him as a, a game show host with a, with, a, with a catchphrase that he had here to go with it. But um, yeah, quite nice to... Uh, to know that I worked for the, the place that did uh, yeah. employ James Bond at one time. Yeah, you absolutely did. And he was in a repertory company. So each week they would have a different uh, radio ad- adaptation. And Moon- Moonraker just happened to be that time up. You know, yeah. it, it was one of one of many. <laughs> love to know, love to hear those as well, wouldn't you? Goodness me. Yeah, but, you know, I, I don't think I don't think it exists. I not certain that it was recorded and you know I, I believe it was not recorded and even if it was even if it were recorded it would have been uh the tape would have been recorded over like you know how the, you know how oh yeah they the did Doctor who's are missing yeah because yeah. they recorded over to you know <laughs> people didn't have an expectation that there would be an interest in these things beyond the the live performance or or maybe the the you know the repeated performance but it was not meant to be something that was preserved which is a shame not just for James Bond and Moonraker but but for all these things that book particularly is almost a, an unanswered question don't you you don't know what they're going to say and then you have the conclusions that you might draw as to what did they bring to the character of Bond and what are the different characteristics and I've always said that it's gone beyond Fleming now the character the character he created of course is the literary Bond but even that's been extended to the other books the radio plays, and particularly the films, they're their own entities now. So it's not as simple as saying that James Bond has to be this, he has to be that, because he had a scar and all this kind of stuff. It's a, it's a lot more diverse now, which I think is great. Yeah, I agree with you. It, t- it, it, it took me the writing of that entire book, When He Lives with James Bond, to figure that out. I started with the thought, with the idea, that there's this character, James Bond, that, that Ian Fleming made, and that these books, comics, video games, radio plays were all almost direct extension of those of that original work. And obviously, they they wouldn't none of these would have existed without Fleming. Yeah, uh, but they are separate entities and mm. sort of should be understood as that. There is not one Bond. There are many versions of Bond. Definitely. Yeah, yeah, and, and and the medium in which you're telling the story impacts what version of Bond you're getting. In a narrative like a movie, you have more opportunity to show different aspects of his character. Um, in a radio show, you're going to 
tone down the action a little bit yeah. and uh, get a little bit into his inner thoughts, which you need to do to tell the story uh, and wouldn't do in any other medium. And in a video game or sometimes in a comic, you amp up the action because yeah. that's what the medium requires. Absolutely. Yeah. Fascinating, isn't it? Mark, obviously, I'm like, I'm, I'm a big fan of your work. And also, like, thank you for... I've had a look at the the new book as well. Just outstanding stuff. And and from a writing perspective, I wanted to ask a little bit about your process, if possible. Like, d- does the the writing process? I mean, like, does it come naturally to you? No, <laughs> really, no, yeah, no. I, I I I'm just a hard worker. Like, I I work hard. I I'm I'm good at research. I'm inquisitive. I don't think I know more than my subjects, but I come prepared. Mm, yeah. Um, I, I listen to what they say. I try to ask questions that they might not have asked before. Before, But I'm, I work hard at it, and I write every day, although I'm trying to just do it five times a day. Uh, not five times a day, five times a day. I was going to say. <laughs> <Yeah>. Wow. <laughs> I, I work in the mornings. I work at night. I work around work. I work one chapter at a time. And then when I then I put all the books, the, all the chapters together, and the one chapter at a time allows me to get it done because I could just work on focus on one thing. Wow, was it always a plan that you would like to to write books, or was it just something that you kind of stumbled into? No, I'm a failed writer. Director oh no, of these. <laughs> no, I I disagree with this. I'm enjoying it though. I, I you know uh, I really like it. I, I think it's fun. I'm grateful when anybody takes the time to to read my work, whether they like it or not. I prefer if they would like it. But these books take, you know, the first one took 10 years. The second one took two or three years. The other one took two or three years. The fourth one took two or three years. Uh, it takes a while to make, the, to, for me to write a book. So I just hope people, you know, go on Amazon and pick one up. Oh, man. When you were growing up, though, what, how did you get into Bond? And who, who was your favourite Bond growing up? Growing up, it was... My original and first bond is is Roger Moore or was Roger Moore, yeah. and I, I always think that your first bond is sort of like your first love or, or like a bird yeah. who sees you know who imprints on the first thing that they see <laughs> allegedly. Um, and so Roger Moore was my version of Bond, and at, at, when I first saw Moonraker in 1979, mm-hmm. I, I greatly preferred Roger Moore to Sean Connery, and I didn't oh. even like. Sean Connery at that time. <laughs> I, I, I wasn't a smart kid, but um, in terms of Sean Connery, I, I didn't yeah, yeah. like him at the time. And so then after Moonraker was For Your Eyes Only, which which what I love about that combo, Moonraker and For Your Eyes Only, is that Moonraker is over-the-top bond in space, mm. and For Your Eyes Only is a gritty thriller and it showed me that it showed me at an early age that there there doesn't have to be one kind of bond story they yeah. don't all have to be one flavor d- different flavors for different times and i think that's uh, helped its longevity you missed mr bond did i as you said such good sport just to back up what you were saying, then, Mark, when I was a kid, you know, uh, we, we get all our Bond films here on, a, on, a, on the ITV network. They regularly show them and still have this day and they would premiere them when they were the premiers. And for me as a kid, it was always Roger Moore. Was, if it was, I would put a Bond film on not knowing which actor it was going to be 
And then if I saw it as Roger Moore, I think, oh, brilliant, it's one of the fun ones. And if it was yeah. Sean Connery, I'd be, oh, there's this not going to be so much action, there's going to be so much fun. And, and that was really, as a kid, all I saw, obviously, my views of, well, I still utterly adore Roger Moore, but my views have changed as I've got older about Sean Connery. But um, yeah, as a kid, very similar to your thoughts. That's fantastic. Absolutely fantastic. <laughs> so when this, this book came out, uh, Mark, did you have lots of people sort of coming in and getting in touch with you to sort of say, I agree with you or I don't agree with you, and things like that? I was really worried while writing the book. I was afraid that Bond fans would tear it apart, that they would <laughs> reject the premise that if I said that Bond has, likes, I don't know, if, if, if Bond likes a nice hamburger, not that, that yeah. people would be like, no, he hates hamburger, he loves yeah. Cheeseburgers or whatever. I, I I completely misjudged the community. My my people's reaction to it, uh, even if they don't agree with every point that I make, nor nor nor, nor should they, has been uh, they've been very they've been very lovely and kind and 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 and, and embraced me, which I which was quite a relief because I, I honestly did live in fear for a couple of years that the whole book would be savaged. We found that to be fair. We, I mean, there's the occasional sort of defensiveness on Twitter. Mm. If you if you praise Pierce Brosnan too much or something like that, people get a bit annoyed. But overall, the, the community or the fan base is a lot more positive and welcoming than certain other franchises, which I'm sure you might have found in your in your book about the four films in <laughs> franchises. <laughs> Name no names, Star Wars. <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> well, you know, I did. I did a documentary on, on extreme Star Wars fans called Jedi Junkies. There, the, 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 there was a guy, and so the, they're extreme fans, and so there was a guy who built a life-size Millennium Falcon in his backyard. Wow, is <laughs> kind of brilliant, right? Yeah. And he built the structure on a toy that had three la- pieces of landing gear, but it, but that is not stable. And when when he built it to scale, he found that three wasn't enough, and that uh, the real Millennium Falcon would have had more. And a terrible wind blew it over, and then he had to <laughs> torch the whole thing. <laughs> but pretty cool. I, I, I don't want to go off on movies go forth at the moment because we're going to talk a little bit about that at the end. But just while you mention it and Star Wars, as you did, Tom, I don't know if you guys have had a chance to read it yet. But do you know what the fourth Star Wars film actually is? <laughs> well, uh, the con- the controversy is. Is it a new hope? Because that's the point. That. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, I, yeah. You, you, you've not even that, got that. Yeah. What's the other, what would you say is the other option for the fourth? Don't don't come in here, Mark. Yeah. Well, <laughs> I, I, I've oh. not read the but It's not the holiday special, is it? Well, it could be could... Rogue One, could it? No, I'm interested. You're all wrong. Even that. Oh, yeah. <laughs> it's the Ewok adventure. Oh right, yes. Oh. <laughs> in a galaxy far, far away. A brother and sister search for their missing parents. How are we going to find them? We will. Don't worry. And fate leads them to the magical Ewoks. We help you. Now, a great adventure begins. It's an action-packed motion picture featuring incredible special effects from the award-winning team of Industrial Light and Magic. That's Mommy and Dad. Sometimes when you search for the impossible, an unbelievable adventure unfolds. I wish we had furry creatures like you where I came from. Don't miss the Ewok Adventure, 
now on video cassette from MGM UA Home Video. There's a good reason for it. Okay. <laughs> so the question, like lots of times, what's the fourth movie is obvious. Yeah. You know, the fourth yeah. James Bond is Thunderball. The fourth modern Batman is Batman and Robin. The fourth mm. Superman is Superman 4. And yeah. a lot of times they'll put the number yeah. in the title to, to clear up any confusion. With Star Wars, it, I thought it was a fun question because well, what is the fourth Star Wars film? Well, the first Star the first Star Wars film was titled Episode Four when it was re-released. Mm. And then what most people think of this fourth Star Wars film, The Phantom Menace, is epi- is titled Episode One. Yeah, yeah. But uh, immediately after Return of the Jedi, uh, they, they George Lucas made a TV film called The Ewok Adventure that played in the states on ABC and was a TV movie. But overseas, it was released theatrically. Overseas, you went to the movie theaters and saw the Ewok adventure. And so for those audiences, therefore, the Star Wars film is the Ewok adventure. I had good friends friends at school who went to see it. Um, I remember it being in the cinemas. I didn't didn't go myself. And I remember there were twins, actually. And uh, I I can't remember how old. It would have been about eight, I think, at the time. And uh, they brought a letter into school saying that they had been cast in the next Ewok film. <laughs> Everyone <laughs> fell for it. Their sister had typed it on a typewriter, so it looked vaguely official. But I must admit, I didn't fall for it. I was like, this is rubbish. Something ridiculous. Uh, <laughs> so, yeah, that's how obsessed young people were with Ewoks at the time. Oh, don't not so good. So good. <laughs> if anyone was a bit confused, that's your latest book, isn't it, Mark? About movies okay. go forth. While we're on it for a moment. Yeah, yeah, yeah. This book is called Movies Go Forth, Fourth Films and Fantastic Franchises. And that book is about the fourth films in movie series, in, in those popular series. So the what is the four, you know, fourth? Batman, Superman, Jaws, Highlander, Terminator, Halloween, Friday the 13th. And, and a lot more than I'm able to sort of rattle off off the top of my head. And then each each film and each franchise is, it tells you something different about franchise filmmaking. And it's just not all me blathering on. It's interviews with the filmmakers of those films. So it's it's the it's I interviewed Joel Schumacher about uh, Batman four as well as three because I figured I talked about yeah that. yeah. So it's really interviews with filmmakers, the, the 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 writers and directors of those films, about about what they were thinking when they were making it, as well as some unmade fourth films like the the fourth Sam Raimi Spider Man film, which they were in pre production on, and it got stopped. So I I, I found out the, what the story would have been for Tobey Maguire's fourth and final <sighs> film. Wow. What, what I because I've read the book uh, as you know, Mark, and, and I, I loved it. So well done. Um, I'll just mention a couple of things that were real highlights for me. One is the artwork. I mean, there's some fantastic drawings throughout by a guy called Is it Pat uh, Carbajal? Is that how you no, say? No, this is this is uh, Robert uh, Robert Ball B A L L. Oh, okay, yeah, some great illustrations. And then Pat did the illustrations inside. Yeah, that's what I meant. Sorry, yeah, those illustrations. <laughs> I think they're they're fantastic right the way through. But what I found really interesting was with four films, we we. We always read interviews with the great directors reflecting back on great films. Mm. And we see interviews with directors of average films when they're out now and they're never going to be honest that that film's average. But what you do here with this book is you get you do get some really good fourth films. The Star Trek fourth is probably the most accessible Star Trek film and 
Thunderball is obviously regarded as one of the best James Bond films. But you've also got a load of films that are seen as really quite average. Superman 4. You've got some that are seen as terrible. Jaws 4. So you're, you're reflecting on, oh, and obviously the Batman's a great example, and, and the Joel Schumacher interview I can't recommend highly enough. He's, he's so honest about his mistakes and his failings and where it went wrong. It's So that's what's interesting is we all know how a great film gets made because we read the, the interviews about those. But how does a very average film come to exist as a very average film? You know, like, well, why? Why didn't you make a great film? You, know? <laughs> you get that from the book. Uh, and I will just finish by saying as well, um, oh, and... Uh, yeah, the Thunderball section is is great, is, by the way, as we're talking Bond. Um, but the bit I almost skipped at the end, and I'm so pleased I didn't, was there was a piece, and, and I've told you about this, Mark, on a film called Meatballs 4. Now, I wasn't familiar <laughs> with the Meatballs series. I think it was a kind of, from the way you describe it, Mark, a bit like an American Pie kind of teen, you know, sex romp comedy thing. But anyway, because I'd never heard of it or, or seen it, I thought I, I won't bother reading that. And then I did read it, and my goodness, that is the highlight of the book. Mm. I, I'll give anything away, but the fact that that film got finished, got made, is a complete beginning, middle and end. It, it, the interview with the director and the writer, honestly, I just, I'll just i read that again every, every few months, I think, because I just found it absolutely <laughs> hilarious. Welcome to Lakeside, where some of the hottest skiers have just landed a new hero. I want you to meet our new recreation director, Ricky Wayne. He's got charm. Oh, thank you. Thank you, Victor. Oh, oh. He's a natural-born leader. Come on, guys, let's do it. Come on, anything's possible if you want it bad enough. Look at Michael Jackson. And he's got two weeks to turn these ski rats into superstars. It's a playground of fun and fantasy. Where the scenery is breathtaking. The passion is pulsating. Why didn't you believe me, Ricky? Because I was afraid, Cal. And the romance is hot. I think I'm gonna change that 10 to a 12. Yeah. But the competition wants to crash this party. Are you going to put up or shut up? And they'll stop at nothing to get what they want. If you don't mind. All right, these girls are gonna look like Smurfs. Now, Kelly, it's a race for survival. Give me my skis. Meatballs 4, to the rescue. You're very, very kind. I, I really appreciate your saying that. I really appreciate the, the support that you've given me. You, you've really been lovely. Um, Steve is referring to uh, Meatballs 4, which I, you know, that's one of those films that I didn't know that Meatballs had made four films in it. I would have guessed maybe two. I had no idea three, <laughs> let alone four. I won't go too far into it, uh, but that's Meatballs 4 started out as a independent film called Happy Campers, starring Cord Corey Feldman, you know, from Lost Boys. <laughs> yeah. And partway through production, they said, this is now Meatballs 4. So the the interviews about what happens when you start a movie that's an independent film, and then partway through they're like, no, it's Meatballs Four. <laughs> and also, when one of your lead actors has to be written out of the film overnight, and then a few days later has to be written back into the film, <laughs> all the scenes. It's honestly, it's absolutely phenomenal and so funny to read it. 
So, uh, so well done. And really interesting idea to do movies go forth, you know, fourth movies. Yeah. Mm. But yeah, great. Well done. Yeah, I, don't, I don't know what I was thinking. I, I, I feel like it's, it's sort of not a good idea for a book because it's, it's kind of, <laughs> it's kind of weird. But you know, the, these fourth films, like Superman, like when people write articles on franchises that go off the rails, they routinely, uh, maybe unfairly. Um, We'll write about Batman 4, Jaws 4, and Superman 4. And I think I kind of backed into this concept based on my interest in those films. Because Superman 4 was a sincere effort to return to what was great about the first two films. That you know, the, the studio first went out to Richard Donner and Tom Mankiewicz to and asked them to come back. They weren't ready to, but they got Christopher Reeve involved in the story, and he came up with, with, with an idea with an idea for the premise. They got Gene Hackman back, and they really tried to go back to the basics. They tried to go back to the heart and romance of Superman Four, and the same thing about Jaws Four, Jaws: The Revenge. You know, when people say this time it's personal, it's a shorthand <laughs> for bad movie. You yeah. Know, that, <laughs> People are just using that slogan to knock whatever the other movie yeah. is. This time it's personal. But it's not that these are great movies, but that the people who were making them at the time really tried to make a great movie. They tried to make the best version possible of one shark getting revenge on the family who killed a completely different shark. <laughs> like, that's a strange premise. But once you have this idea, Jaws the Revenge, that's what you get. Like, that's the almost logical version of what is Jaws the Revenge, even though it's not logical. One of the things I was excited to mention when I got the chance to talk to you tonight was something that really scarred me massively for life, which was Sean at the start getting his <laughs> arm bit off in that unbelievable set piece in the harbour outside Damity. is a set piece that I think is so streets ahead of the rest of the movie. <laughs> you know what I mean? It's unbelievable, that, that opener. And, and I also think the acting is incredible. You know, when he's like, he's looking down for his arm and he's like, there's nothing there when he finds it. Like, oh my God, this is horrendous. And um, I remember watching that way too young and being way too scarred oh, yeah. for a long time about that. <laughs> So you can get these nuggets of massive gold in these in these movies. Yeah, I mean these are made by you know made by filmmakers that are you know the, the, Superman, Jaws, and Planet of the Apes were directed by. Let me see if I get this right: Joseph Sargent, Sidney J. Fury, and Jay Lee Thompson, who are these classic old filmmakers 
who aren't necessarily given the same opportunities that they once were, but still are in the game and are still, you know, and are still trying to make a living and make movies that, that they hope entertain other people. I, I, oh, I love that. I think that would be like probably a fantasy role. I think of mine, if, Obviously, doing anything involved with movies would be absolutely unbelievable. But then, like, yeah, we need someone to direct Jaws 8. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Where do I, who do I ask? Who do I, you know, that kind of thing. This is a tale of the supernatural. The Tapes, a podcast of the uncanny. Do you believe in ghosts? Join me, host Christopher Goldie, and guests as we discuss the best in unsettling television and film. Who is this? Who is coming? Find us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Search for at the Tapes Pod, part of the Pod Dojo Network. A lot of people think Thunderball is a is a great Bond film. So why do you think the makers got Thunderball right? Do you think it's because there was such a continuity of obviously the leading man, but also? A lot of the writers were still basing them to an extent on the Fleming books. They had, there was a lot, and obviously mm. Broccoli still overseeing the whole thing. Do you think that helped? Because I mean, it did feel Bond was building and building at that time. Yeah, absolutely. Part of it was the continuity of filmmakers. You know, although Guy Hamilton did Goldfinger, but but a lot of a lot, as you're saying, of the key creatives were there. Yeah, at Chappie, and and particularly Broccoli and Saltzman and and. You know the, the writers, the you know music. You know there were so many of the key elements who, in Doctor No, they were sort of finding. In the first film, they were sort of finding out what are we doing, and in the second one, they were building it, and the third one, they kind of found their formula. Yeah, I think part of the success of the fourth film, Thunderball, was based on the goodwill of Goldfinger. Yeah, and then by the time they did Thunderball. The the, the 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 there's an interview with with the with the the heroine the bond woman in that, and she talks about how relaxed the set was mm-hmm. where they just felt like we've got this and they were mm-hmm. i mean they worked hard and they were focused but there was an attitude of comfort 200 200 livres banco 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 sir Carte. Carte. Eight. Someone has to lose. Yes, I thought I saw a spectre at your shoulder. What do you mean? The spectre of defeat. That your luck was due to change. We'll soon find out. Any objection to raise the limit? 500 pounds, shall we say? Too big for me. Count me out, too. Perhaps you'd like to take the shoe. My friend won't mind. Mr... Bond. Oh, yes. Mr. Bond. One of my associates spoke about you. Nothing bad, I hope. Un banco de 500 livres. Ah, it's your spectre against mine, huh? Le banco est fait. You wish to put the evil eye on me, huh? We have a way to deal with that where I come from. Well, you may hex me. Let's see what it does for the cards. No. No. Seven. Set à la pointe. Six. Suivi. Banco suivi. 
I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now, and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45, equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply, if rated PG. Nine. You seem to be unbeatable, Mr. Bond. No, for the moment, this sort of thing can't last. Emilio, you promised to buy me a drink. Soon, my dear. I want to get my money back first. May I be allowed to buy the lady a drink? I would appreciate that. Thank you. Then I must pass the shoe. La même passe. Banco. It's going to be impossible if his luck doesn't change. Somehow I don't think it will tonight. But you know what's interesting, though, as you're talking, asking this question, Steve, Batman 4, Batman and Robin, was made by the same creative team as Batman 3, Batman Forever. Mm. That had the same director, writer, not cast, but, you know, cinematographer, uh, composer, and other key elements. And that was a case where even though the same creative team came back together to make another film, Batman 3 worked for most people and Batman 4 did not. Hi there. And you are... Poison. Poison Ivy. Why not send Junior home early? I've got some wild oats to sow. On the other hand, youth does have its advantages. Endurance, stamina. Forget the geriatric bat. Come join me. My garden needs tending. I'll take it from here, pal. Wouldn't you like the earrings too? Some lucky boy's about to hit the honeypot. I'll include an evening of my company for the winner. I'll bring everything you see here, plus everything you don't. <laughs> I bet $50,000 for Poison Ivy. A hundred thousand. One million dollars. Two million. You don't have it. Three million. I'll borrow it from you. Four million. Five million. That's a utility belt, not a money belt. Six million. Seven million. <laughs> Never leave the cave without it. You two boys aren't going to start fighting over little old me now, are you? I think with Batman, uh, I've always felt with the Joel Schumacher Batman, the first one, Batman Forever, 
it felt like it was right on the edge yeah. being terrible, but it was on the good side. It stayed yeah. on the good side. So it didn't actually have to move very far no, yeah. in the sequel yeah. to fall over and become, you know, pretty terrible. Do you know what I mean? In some mm. ways, they're very similar films, but one is on one side of the line and the other is on on the good side. You know, the, the entertaining, you can, you can buy the craziness of it. The other one, the craziness just goes that bit too far. That's how I yeah. see those, those Batman films. Yeah, and one of the challenging things about making these is that you're not, the creatives are not totally on their own. They are reporting to their bosses who are the studios who are paying for all this. And they're working with those parameters. A lot of times on these films, particularly superhero films, they are given instructions on which villains or how many villains. And the purpose of having multiple villains is that if Batman is fighting Poison Ivy, Mr. Freeze, and Bane, and there's Robin and Batgirl, and then there's Batman, those are what, six action figures? Mm. Six cups, you know, six cups at McDonald's. They're told to make sure you have a a newly designed Batsuit because you need to sell a different action figure. And it's really the merchandise that pays for the movies. That's where the profit is for the studios. So they hope to make their money back and break even and and plus some on on box office. But that's not the thing that drives these things all the time. A lot of the times it's it's the merchandising. uh, Yeah, I I can only back that up. I mean, Batman and Robin was like the first Batman film that I remembered when I was growing up. And I remember to the point of that, like, so cereal boxes used to have toys that you could collect of the Batman and Robin figures. It was everywhere, but they were always, it was, it was a marketing tool. It was in terms of like, we'll give you a snippet of this. So then you'll go and buy the real thing from, from the toy store. And I bought everything that Christmas of Batman and Robin. And all right, you know, you can retrospectively or say it's, a terrible film and in a lot of ways yeah it is but it did set out what it was supposed to do in terms of selling the toys yeah it, it, it and it's sometimes sometimes it's easy for sometimes a filmmaker will have enough power to impose their art on these commercial projects you know you see that with the christopher nolan trilogy it's yeah. not there's no four times the charm for christopher nolan he told the three films that he wanted to tell and then he stopped steve was just talking not just but steve was talking about star trek and he said that star trek 4 was the most accessible and and he's absolutely right you know with the star trek films they're not really built to compete in the star wars universe Mm -hmm. star wars are meant to appeal to a mass audience star trek but it's DNA on the TV show where people sitting around talking about philosophical problems. Mm. And then the first Star Trek film, the motion picture was a, 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 a natural extension of that. And then, but the, by the time the second one is really the one that established the template for the movie, which is let's have the, the crew go up against this strong evil figure Khan. But the fourth one was really the time where they opened it up to the, non-truckers uh and said that you'll be able to enjoy this film 
without having a knowledge of yeah. the TV series or the previous films. Mm. But you just need to understand, it, it's, it's a character film. It's a, it's a fish-out-of-water comedy, Star Trek IV, The One With Whales. language has altered since our arrival. It is currently laced with, shall I say, more colorful metaphors. Double dumbass on you, and so forth. You mean the profanity? Yes. That's simply the way they talk here. Nobody pays any attention to you unless you swear every other word. You'll find it in all the literature of the period. For example? Well, the collected works of Jacqueline Suzanne. The novels are Harold Robinson. Ah. The Giants. I'm, I'm saying with casual Star Trek view, I don't think Star Trek has the following in this country like it does in the United States. Um, probably because it's full of too much hope and um, positivity. And we're, <laughs> yeah, we're not that hopeful or positive. <laughs> Certainly about uh, our own countrymen. But um, yeah, Star Trek Four. It is. It is pre- really. It's a comedy, and I watched them all. I bought. I got the Blu-rays for Christmas. All the original films. So I watched them all recently in a row, and uh, I have to say, Star Trek Four. I'd recommend it to anyone because it's just a very funny film that it's, it's it's just done just right it's it's got drama and it's got excitement and action but it's just uh, you don't need to like star trek it's just guys from the future landing in well what was present day uh, america and trying to fit in but which they do very badly and it's um it's a good good fun romp yeah you know the the, the i spoke to the one of the co-writers for that and his sort of challenge he said was you have these two leads spock and kirk or um Shatner and, and Leonard Nimoy. You need to give both of both actors, both characters, something to do. He called it, you have to give both of them the opportunity to drive the bus. That means you have to give both of them equal opportunity to figure something out, punch out a guy, or you know, come up with an idea that gets them to the next thing. That has to be a co-lead. And that's an example, you know, when we talk about the action figures dictating the parameters of the movie, here you have actors and and their needs and their goals for the film uh dictating the the structure of that film it's quite rare isn't it these days to have two protagonists in a film as well you know i think we've we've spoken about the odd bond film such as octopussy where stephen burkov's character Orlov is effectively a protagonist at one point natalia in golden eyes a protagonist and it just it doesn't happen as much now i think because Modern cinema tastes are you back a superhero, you back a franchise lead, and we really don't have time for the other people. Those well, we'll have time for a baddie, but we don't need him until the second act at least. And we want to focus more on characters. And I think you'll have seen that change over the years in a lot of these films. But it's interesting that sometimes when the if you finished a, a trilogy or what could have been a trilogy, the fourth one, as you said in your book, is it's a chance to do something a little bit different and Certainly the case of Star Trek, but 
Mm. Some of these, some of these other films that are in book, I don't know. I mean, I, I remember you, you talking about Scream as well, Scream Four, which is sort of was a trilogy, wasn't it? And then they did get the original team back, like Kevin Williamson and Wes Craven. Sometimes I suppose it's about money as well, isn't it? Like this is a beloved franchise. Yeah, they're all up for it. We've got the same cast. Might as well do it again. Yeah, yeah Scream Four is an, an example of I like it <laughs> of, of of them trying to start another trilogy with legacy cast. Yes, yeah, uh, as well as new characters, but not getting the box office returns sufficient to start four, five, six, all as yeah. one plot. So w- when they returned for five, you, you know, each each time after that took a little. Was almost a restart. That's like the new trilogy now, isn't it? I think five. I presume there'll be a yeah, second. like five, six, and yeah, yeah. <laughs> I I prefer four personally. But anyway, tell us a bit about the Spider-Man one. So, what? Why did that not get made? So, Spider-Man is one of those cases where Spider-Man three was so popular. Spider-Man yeah. three yeah. made more money than Spider-Man one and two, even though it's not as well regarded as either film today. But it was sufficiently popular to let's have the same team come back together and make a fourth and final Spider-Man film. There's more of that story to tell. The 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 his Peter Parker and and their story has not been resolved. There's a also a legitimate storytelling reason yeah, yeah. to do the fourth one. But by the time you get to a fourth one, it's expensive. It's expensive for the to pay the director and the stars. It becomes really top heavy, and they were pushed, and that so, but they were still willing to do it. But they were pushing Sam Raimi in a direction creatively where he didn't want to go. He, for the third one, didn't really want to use the 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 symbiote character, and he felt like that. You know, that's an example of the studio saying, "Use this villain." Yeah, yeah. He didn't want to. He did it out of a sense of responsibility or duty to the fans. But he, from that film, he said, "I'm not going to make another film that I'm not personally invested." Mm. And so he wanted to stick to his creative guns, and they were moving him in a direction, and it sort of just sort of fell up. And he wanted to tell his story in such a way that would have definitively put an end to Peter Parker's story. And he said, let me do my thing. I know my ideas for this film are a little unconventional. And my ideas for for Spider-Man 4 don't lead to Spider-Man 5. However, you're going to reboot it anyway. Let me end this story Hmm. definitively. And then you go make Spider-Man one again with somebody else. Uh, and they didn't have a meeting of the minds. And even though they were in prep and had started casting, uh, it fell apart. It's a shame, isn't it? Yeah. I, I do think there's more story to tell with that one particularly. Uh, I know what you mean, though, because then Tobey Maguire, Sam Raimi, they all know, well, you're going to have to have me to continue the story. So the costs are ramped up, aren't they? There's some other ones which you've focused on, and these are sort of, we've touched on a bit, legacy sequels, such as Rambo. Now, that, again, was probably before the current wave of all these legacy sequels, but that was a, there was a good long gap, wasn't there, between the original yeah. three? With, with Rambo, that was 
intended to end the series. The, nothing yeah. happens to him in such a way where he, you know, he doesn't get killed off. But it was written to be his final adventure, and it was and and in the last you know scene, you see him returning home, and that was important for that character who had, whose identity was wrapped up in America and, and America discarded as a Vietnam veteran to not welcome him back, but at least have the character who was out of the country for two, three, and most of four to come back home and, you know, return to America, his home country. Why'd you come back? Waiting for you. I told you before I can't help you. Why? Don't want to. Where are your friends? At the hotel. I can take care of myself. Is that so? Yes. I know you don't like us. I never said that. Well, it looks that way. We need to go and help these people. Who you help? Them or you? Does it matter? Yeah, it matters. Them. There's nothing missing in our lives back home. We're here to make a difference. We believe all lives are special. Some lives, some no. Really? If everyone thought like you, nothing would ever change. Nothing does change. Of course it does. Nothing stays the same. Live your life because you got a good one. It's what I'm trying to do. No, what you're trying to do is change what is. And what is? That we're like animals. It's in the blood. It's natural. Peace, that's an accident. It's what is. When you're pushed, killing's as easy as breathing. And the killing stops in one place, it starts in another, but that's okay. Because you're killing for your country. But it ain't your country who's asking. It's a few men up top who want it. Old men start it. Young men fight it. Nobody wins. Everybody in the middle dies. And nobody tells the truth. God's gonna make all that go away. But it was sufficiently profitable that they were that they made a fifth one, even though they weren't in necessarily intending to. Yeah. And the thing about Stallone, while we're on Stallone, Rocky Four is the most popular Rocky movie. And it's also the one that's totally different from the other ones. Yeah. It's, mm -hmm. yeah. it's yeah. over the top. It's got a lot of music in it. It's got yeah. a lot of it's got like five montages. You know, there's there's only, there's like 20 minutes of, of, of montages of clips from other parts of the movie or from other parts of the series. And then during the pandemic, Stallone went back and re-edited the movie and got rid out of got rid of everything that was a little bit goofy. They got rid of the Rocky robot that yeah, yeah. used to fall in love with. And he recut it and re-released it which I think is kind of interesting. And then for the Creed, those Creed yeah. movies are actually not, then after Rocky IV, there was, you know, five and six, but mm -hmm. those Creed movies are actually sequels to the events of Rocky IV. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Kind of, yeah. Yeah, yeah. I only knew about the re-edit, and, and I quite like the Rocky films, I only knew about the re-edit reading your book. I hadn't realized oh. that it happened. I hadn't seen a wide release of it here unless I just missed it. But uh, yeah, I'm quite interested to yeah. see the re-edit, but I, I've got a soft spot for the original Rocky IV. I don't it's care great. Yeah, it's not. It's probably he probably made a more mature film, uh, but I don't think people are gonna. I don't think it's gonna replace the original cut of Rocky Four, nor should it. It's 
it, it makes it a it makes it a more serious film in keeping with the rest of the series. But the, what the, so much of these sort of the over the top nature of it, which is enjoyable in Rocky IV, uh, is absent. So I think a lot of fans are going to watch it and think, "Oh, interesting." I prefer the you know the original. It's a funny one, Rocky Four, because if you were, I suppose, there growing up with them at the time, the first one's a real rags to riches, underdog, yep. pretty low key, gritty, and quite dark mm. in places. And if you've seen him gradually his career, you know, you see the different him rise to power, struggles with holding on to that fame and celebrity in the second and third. And then the fourth one, you know, was not as well received, was it? Because it was more popcorn entertainment. Mm. And then what but happens, it, of course, it, is that it, kids yeah. and the first time I watched a Rocky film was the fourth one because it was yeah. the most accessible. And I think non-diehard, non-boxing fans, that's the one I'd say, watch that one first. Well, you know what's interesting is I think that's the only Rocky film that it's sort of about the fight. The, the fight was yeah. always a metaphor for something else. Rocky IV is just like America versus the Soviet Union. Like that yeah. film was all centered around <laughs> yeah. the fight. Revenge as well for, for Korea. But that's what, what, that's what happens is when you make these sequel films, it sometimes inadvertently changes the nature of the hero. So like if you take a, if you look at Die Hard, um, mm-hmm. it's not a cop movie. It's It's a film about a guy, an ordinary man in an extraordinary circumstance. Yes. In fact, the cop gives him the skills to to fight the, the the bad guys, but he's just an ordinary guy. But by the time it, when that see, when that keeps on happening to him again yeah. and again, yes, he's no longer an ordinary guy. And then by the time you do Rock uh, Die Hard Four, he's jumping from I can't remember like a helicopter to an airplane, then falling off and not really getting injured. You change. Mm. You go so far away from the guy who stepped on little shards of glass yeah. to this yeah. Superman yeah. Uh, that it changes the nature. And the the Bruce Willis and the writer had a different idea for Die Hard 4 where they wanted to call it Die Effin' Hard, but they didn't say <laughs> Effin'. And um, in it, Bruce Willis's character, John McClane, would have gotten his hand stuck under a downed helicopter and Bruce Willis would have had to take a a, a knife and cut his hand free, uh, and then had to you know do the rest of the movie without his you know gun. Oh, hand. Amazing. Um, and so, so this this the screenwriter told me this whole wonderful alternate story uh, that was very much rated R and very different from the PG thirteen film. Yeah. That we- wow. <laughs> do you have a particular fourth of anything? 
anywhere that you really would go to bat for? No, you know, I try not to put my opinions of these films in there. I, I might like I might like Superman four and have a, 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 a great greater fondness for it than other people. But I, I try not to. I feel like whether I like a book, a movie or not, is not the point of the exercise. That not all the movies that I include in movies go forth are great necessarily great works of art they're not some of them are not anybody's favorite film possibly probably i don't know how many porky's four fans there are (laughs) but it doesn't mean but all of those films were made with were, were made by people who love making movies and who tried the hardest they could with the circumstances that were in front of them to make the best film that they could and even when the final effort doesn't live up to their own expectations, the, the, the effort was worth it and their experience was worth it and the stories that they have to tell about it are priceless. That's such a fabulous answer um, hmm. in the context of your work. So you mentioned there that like perhaps, you know, like as a writer and as the author of these books, you don't want to perhaps pick one. What about Mark Edlitz, the movie lover? Just the dude, the dude who goes to the movies. Like, what is there a particular? No, I mean, I love all these franchises. I mean, I do. I, I, you know, I love Superman and Batman and Die Hard and James Bond and and Star Wars and Terminator and High and Highlander. I love Planet of the Apes. Oh, you no, know, uh, I love Psycho. I, I mean, I'm a movie lover first. Um, And so this was my opportunity to write about things that I personally love a lot. Your love of movies really does shine. It really, really comes across. I think we'd have to go on to the Crystal School. And (laughs) our sister podcast, for your reconsideration, has just looked at this film. It's sort of one where the original trilogy, not that it was meant to be a trilogy, but it was all done in the 80s, wasn't it? It was all Spielberg and Lucas, Harrison Ford. All wrapped up, going off into the distance with the in the horses at the end of Last Crusade, and then hang on, all, all the main people involved want to do it again. The worry with that was you can't get anywhere near as good as any of those three, so why make it? So it's already got that pressure behind it. Hmm. This ain't gonna be easy. Not as easy as it used to be. Yeah, you know, James Mangold, as we're recording this, Indie 5 we just released, and James yeah. Mangold was talking about the challenges that that he faced in 5 and that Spielberg faced in 4, and he said something which, which I thought was interesting, and I'll repeat right now. He said that the form and content of the first three were the same, that, that the first three films were about good versus evil in, in, in black and white terms, and that the style of the that those films were classic Hollywood style when those stories were told. So there was a merger of content and form. 
classic Hollywood style, good versus evil. He he said that by the time you get to four, Kingdom of the Crystal Skull, you're now getting into a different era of moving from the the you know the 40s and 50s or whatever to the 60s and now uh, to the uh, to the 50s and 60s where uh, things are more where morality is more murky and that things are more uh, no longer black and white. And so that the style, the form and the content are no longer the same. And that was, he said, the challenge for five and four. Yeah, I got I got some of the the dates wrong, but you. I, oh no! You, yeah, yeah. I feel like you got the gist of what I was trying sense. to say, even if I was. Set, you know, the, certainly when you've got the Nazis as the baddies, it's it's black and white, isn't it? That's every everyone's routine. They know that they're the baddies throughout. But then, yeah, the fourth one is a bit different because you, you it's more of a mystery, and you go on this journey with them, and you don't really know what it's going to be about. Last Crusade, the Ark, you know what it's about before it's. Even you know, barely started. You know what they've got to find. You mm. know what they've got to do. You know who they've got to stop. But and they always reveal the the, the the things powers are always yes. different than you would expect. Correct. Yes, that's right. Yeah, yeah. And if the, I don't know. I, I I I'll defend it to a certain extent. Certainly the fourth one. But again, it made a ton of money, didn't it? So the, <laughs> for me, it felt it felt a bit like when I, when I saw Crystal Skull, it felt a bit like how I felt watching Die Another Day, which you could argue was a sort of fourth Bond film because yeah, yeah, but then yeah. Goldeneye came in '95, and it's the fourth one of Brosnan's films. It's sort of a fourth film in yeah. that way, but they both feel very similar to me. They've got well, they've got bad CGI in both, lots of it, <laughs> and, but also the the characters aren't allowed to, to to develop in the way they were in the previous films. Um, not not like. Characterization in the previous films was always handled, I think, quite subtly and lightly. It wasn't rammed down your throat like some current films try to do. But it was done very nicely like that. Whereas neither, neither Die Another Day or Crustle Skull seemed to manage to do that at all. It was it felt forced when it was characterization and very clunky, horrible dialogue. And yeah, I think they're both guilty, you know. I actually thought they came out at a similar time. I looked and Crystal Skull was quite a few years later, wasn't mm-hmm. it? So. Yeah. Yeah, interesting. Of course, he was older, wasn't he, Harrison Ford? And the character had to be older. So I think, it, yeah, it maybe gave him too much of a passive role in the film. And he couldn't quite be the indie doing the things that no one else could do. In the same way that Bond, you know, we haven't had we haven't had an old man Bond film yet. And I know a few fans are, are well up for that. But they always say Pierce is the one who should do it, which would be quite interesting. <laughs> Uh, Connery tried it um, with never. Yeah, seen, well, yeah, never again, yeah. Where where commented a little bit on you know his age and a little bit. I'm too old for this stuff. You know, not not those words, of course. Mm. But, and I I thought that was, I I'm a big never say never again fan. Yeah, yeah. Too many free radicals. That's your problem. Free radicals, sir. Yeah, they're toxins that destroy the body and the brain, caused by eating too much red meat and white bread and too many dry martinis. Then I shall cut out the white bread, sir. Oh, you'll do more than that, 007. From now on, you will be suffering a strict regimen of diet and exercise. We shall purge those toxins from you. Shrublins, you got it. You could argue Skyfall kind of goes down that line. There's a lot of things yeah. about how, you know, is he still up for this? Is he still physically fit? Is he able? That That's the nearest we've got to, really. No, I, th- I think it. that's a fair point. You know, we, we sort of missed Bond's middle years. Yeah. One and two were Bond, where Jim, James Bond begins-ish. 
Mm-hmm. And then fourth, he's, as you're saying, a little too old for this. You know, he's recovering from physical injuries. Yeah. He's burnt out. He's played out. He's he's finished. But we never got the Daniel Craig bond at sort of the the, the top of his powers. Yeah, yeah I agree. You know, from Daniel Craig being a blunt instrument who's not yet effectively <laughs> qualified to be a double O. Um, and, and bearing in mind, Quantum and Casino are effectively one adventure. Yeah, yeah. So yeah. it's his next adventure. He's now too old. Yeah. <laughs> he goes from being too young to too old with nothing in between. And it's a shame because there's a there's a video game that came out in between Bloodstone that would have been perfect to just yeah. placed in there as a film in between, and we've got a bit more of a consistent storyline. Yeah, that was written by Bruce Fierston, uh, uh, who wrote some of the Pierce Brosnan yeah. uh, things. Yeah. The good, the good writer from the yeah. Pierce Brosnan years. Yeah, he wrote Goldeneye, <laughs> didn't he? I think. Yeah, yeah. Some of Goldeneye and pretty much all of Tomorrow Never Dies, I think. Yeah, yeah. Not Dying of the Day, Steve. And Bruce also wrote part of the. I guess this, I can't remember which book this is from. This might be from the Lost Adventures of James Bond. I can't remember. There was a a ride you went on at the at a theme park where you first. It's a James Bond theme park ride. And it starts with Judy Dench's M and Desmond Llewellyn's Q yeah. talking to you and talking you through the, the thing. And then the theme park attraction is you're watching a first person film where you, the 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 audience member, are watching the adventures entirely through Bond's point of view. So it's a it's a short point of view movie. Um, and, and he wrote the, the the Desmond Llewellyn stuff and the and the Judy Dunn stuff. I think that oh. might be licensed to thrill because yes. the, the yes. Trocadero in London yeah. and I never went, missed it. I mean, how good would that be? <laughs> I suppose maybe Bruce Fierstein and his video game because people say Tomorrow Never Dies is the most video game sort of Bond, isn't it? It's quite shooting. Yeah. At times, which is interesting, yeah. I interviewed him for one of the, in one of these books about it, and he said that for the video game, he was trying to write sort of a James Bond adventure that you wouldn't necessarily see on the screen, but that yeah, he would have yeah. gone on. So it wouldn't have it'd been like the big adventure between the big between the big movie adventures. And I think it succeeds. I'm I'm a fan. Yeah, yeah, I agree. And I think it actually what you just said he, the aim was that's exactly what that film is. <laughs> oh, and he also wrote some of James Bond Legends, which imagines yeah. Craig's Bond in in each different Bond era, which I, I might be a, which I which I thought was fun. I thought it was a fun idea to see how Daniel Craig would function in different eras. Yeah. I know that fans don't; it's not universally embraced, but because of the gameplay, mostly, I think. <laughs> I'd love uh, to see when your Greg dropped into Octopussy. <laughs> yeah, as a clown. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I don't know. I think my thing is if if you're going to play License to Kill, I want to see Timothy Dalton in License to Kill. I don't <laughs> want to play as Daniel Craig. I'm sorry, you know. But <laughs> I, I I don't think that there a there was one. There there are games that were you know people thought wouldn't it be great if yeah, you know, if we get yeah. multiple bonds if we get there's all there's often licensing issues. Where yeah. if you get multiple, if you're get if you're using the likeness of multiple actors, whether it's Bond or something else, you have to pay for that privilege, and then these games become prohibitively expensive. Mm. 
So that, that's one of the challenges of, of, yeah. of doing a game like that, which would be fabulous. But that's one of the challenges. But, you know, the, the um, Sean Connery. Exactly. From, from Russia with Love. Yeah, that was the last, his last Bond performance. I mean, that is unbelievable. It's so random. It is. It's, it's so good, honestly, that, like, just mid-noughties Sean Connery. I'll, <laughs> I'll come and oh. do for Russia with Love, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Bruce, Bruce wrote that as well. Yeah. Oh. Yeah. Yeah. Oh. In an ideal world, we'd have each of the Bond films done as video games, with the actors' likenesses for each one, and they could they could just release them every few years. You know, they don't need to be in any rush. They could have been releasing them these last few years, but anyway. <laughs> uh, just to go back to Thunderball, of course. So that was the fourth James Bond film. You have an interview with Luciana Paluzzi, and we we spoke to her, <laughs> and I mean she's wonderful, wonderful lady Lovely. to start with. Yeah. But you do, you did, and you also mentioned this on the set atmosphere where Terence Young would make sure everyone was looked after. You know, there were boat parties, the, the catering on the beach. And I think they even sort of watched each other's scenes as they were in the Bahamas. It was a, I mean, it's, I mean, it sounds like a one in a million experience for everyone involved. And I think that that only came with the three that had gone before. Terence Young was back, obviously. So the, there were, well, the dream team were there, weren't they, really? Yeah, there was just a confidence in, in what they were doing, which seemed to have helped the making of the movie. And and it's, you know, when you say what what bomb film was seen by more than, than than others, it's a little bit hard just because the accounting was not as rigorous and as then as it was now. But it's generally believed that Thunderball sold more tickets than any other Bond film mm. up until recently. Yeah. Uh, there, it's possible that Skyfall sold more tickets. I'm not talking about just just bottoms and seats. It, yes, it could yeah. be that Skyfall sold more, but you're still comparing that to you know a, a movie from the '60s. Yeah. And so for many many years, Thunderball was the one to beat. And of course, at the time as well, you know you couldn't watch James Bond if you were living in most of the lots of countries in the world, could you? You know, it's been opened up the cinematic. Uh, the cinematic world. I know certainly China at the time would not have been seeing Thunderball, whereas Skyfall, of course, some of it was set in China. So the, that's yeah. changed in those years. But Thunderball, yeah, I, you know, we've just recently done a, a huge review of it. And it's one of those which, because it's so iconic, because it has all the ingredients of Bond films, all the cliches have become, you know, based on things from that film, you know, the, a villain with an eye patch. A villain's desk where one of them gets killed, and it and it became the one Mike Myers found easiest to sort of take the mick out of in Austin Powers. I like a fourth one of them, by the way, but that's another. Um, just just as a thing, there was <laughs> there was rumors of a pre-production fourth Austin Powers film, and it was called For Your Fies Only. <laughs> I love the fact as if Mike Myers was like, I need to make the perfect trilogy, and I won't I won't touch it again after. <laughs> Mark, if you need a, a new idea for a new book. The Lost Adventures of Austin Powers. <laughs> <laughs> Over time, of course, when you speak to people like my dad and that generation, they still regard it as one of the very top. You know, the first the first five are really regarded as Pete Bond in terms of that. But over time, because people seem to think, they, they latch on to, say, the underwater scenes look slow, things like that. They latch on to, oh, ter doesn't Sean look bored, which is, I think is complete rubbish. And, they, you know, they say that about you know, twice as well. Because of the history, maybe, as well, with the remake of Never Say Never Again, maybe that's hurt it a little bit. 
what tends to happen is when something's so popular, if you're a fan of it, you're like, well, I know that one's popular. I want to sort of go for the underdog. And then the like almost Goldfinger <laughs> is in danger of being slightly overlooked these days because everyone knows it's a classic. Everyone loves it. But that means people aren't really talking about it as much. And I hope that certainly for young Bond fans, people coming to the franchise more recently, I do hope they give Thunderball a chance because really seeing it at the cinema for us in when they showed them on the, the last year in the... I'm sorry they didn't mark in America, but yeah, they, the UK were very lucky in that sense. So we had one a week. And Thunderball was a different film on the big screen. It, you know, it's... I mean, the yeah, sound editing, I think John's saying, it's just... It was just an amazing cinematic experience, and that's that's because they knew exactly what they were doing at that time. I think. Yeah, yeah. The, we, we, I mean, we've been talking about fours for most franchises, but for Bond, it's the third time, which is often the charm. You yeah, know, Connery's third Goldfinger, Moore's third Spy Who Loved Me, are you know are really sort of what are often considered their key films. Uh, sadly, with Timothy Dalton, we never got a a third. And I had always been. This is my 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 clever transition to the last. I, I, you did it very well. Synergy, suggestion. Well, I I hope that I hope there's something that you can take from the knowledge that it's on my coffee table right now. Like, no, it is, it is, it is. I think it's beautiful. Like seriously, our WhatsApp group, when we saw this book on, you know, on Amazon, it blew up the WhatsApp group. It was like, have you guys seen this? You know, oh, like, great, great. like we have to own this. When, when my family did the whole, you know, like WhatsApp Christmas list group, <laughs> yeah. that was the only thing I put in it. <laughs> <laughs> I should add that the cover of, of the Lost Adventures of James Bond uh, with Sean Longmore, uh, who who, oh, who oh, right. yeah, yeah. two covers, and I didn't. I love them both so much. I was like, well, what if we do both? That was <laughs> that was all Sean, who's is a genius artist, and I'm grateful that he gets that I get to occasionally work with him. Man, that is awesome. Hi, this is Andreas Wisniewski, and you're listening to Really 007. never got a third we got a his first one was very much in keeping with the previous bonds you know it it it, the same tone the same tenor the Mm. same style the second one was there it was was much grittier much more down to earth much more violent and so the third one everyone wanted to know what would that have been like for dalton would it have been more like the first one, less like the second one. Would it be the best of both worlds? Hmm. Um, and it's important to remember that Dalton's third one was going to get made. You know, there's sometimes a thought that it didn't get made because the second one didn't do as well. And it's true. To be clear, the second one did not do as well. It did not do what they expected. It was a financial disappointment. Mm-hmm. Um, but that was not the end of, of Dalton as Bond at that yeah. time. They were moving forward with ideas for a third and even a fourth Dalton. Mm-hmm. But there was studio politics and lawsuits unrelated to Bond that Bond sort of got swept away 
uh, with or in that put it on hold. And by the time they, they the studio got that all cleared out, uh, Dalton was out. But they were going to tell um, a third James Bond story with Timothy Dalton. And the book goes to goes into two different versions of that story, uh, which I almost think of as two separate movies. To me, they don't feel like a rewrite of the of each other. It feels like two separate films. Uh, the first was written by Michael G. Wilson and and Alphonse Ruggiero, who was a te- American television writer who did Miami Vice and another show called Wise Guys. Uh, because of the Miami Vice connection, people thought that that was going to be dr- a drug-related movie. It, it was not. It was going to be more of a techno thriller. Mm. They hired one of the reasons they hired him is because well, two of the reasons. One is the other film, the other t- television series was something called Wise Guy, um, which was sort of a precursor to Sopranos with serialized yeah. storytelling. Uh, and so it was character-based uh, on, on regular TV. And then the other reason that they that they hired him is because he was a TV writer and could write fast, and they were trying to get it done before sort of an upcoming uh, deadline, uh, possibly a writer's strike. Anyway, so that's the one that people always think it's Bond versus the robots. Now, there is a moment in in the third where, Bo- where Bond does seem to battle someone who is an android, but it's one. It's not Bond versus Terminator. It <laughs> it would have been handled where you were. Le- I think it would have been handled where you were left wondering exactly what this character was. You would have seen that they had uh, android esque parts, but you wouldn't have necessarily concluded that they were a total android. You know it. It. You know how with Live and Let Die, it ends with mm, yeah. He's been yeah. killed twice. You know. Baron Samity's been killed twice. And then here he is at the end of the train. It's never explained. It's a little fun thing for the audience. And my impression is that's how they would have handled the Terminator-esque character in to be Dalton's third bond, unmade. Because you did have, didn't you? Terminator was Terminator 2 yeah. was absolutely massive, wasn't massive. it? Massive. And but Bond films have always leaned in, traditionally on what was popular at the time, but they'll do it in their own bond way, you know. I always say when people say, I mean, it's quite a niche group of people who know about this Terminator, the third Bond film for Dalton. Yeah. But you always think if Dalton was in it, they're still the same producers. They're not going to, it's not just going to be some cyborg chasing Bond, you know. They will, they yeah. will try and ground it in reality as yeah. what is Bond. Yeah, and it should be noted that that never came to be. No, no. They didn't, it was, you know, it's like when we look at these unmade screenplays and treatments we should think of them as as the thinking of the time or as an idea that they were exploring mm. so someone says wouldn't it be cool if and someone else uh, they talk about it a lot and they say okay give it a shot and then but they never used it so it, it's yeah. important not to be too critical of the idea i i think the diamonds are forever was going to be a direct sequel to On a Majesty. That's, that's another lost or unmade Bond, isn't it? I find it interesting, Mark, that that, that you as an, an American has written a book about a missing Timothy Dalton film because you write about Licence to Kill didn't do mm. the business of Daylights. But I think mostly that was in the States. I think it still made roughly the same money as Living Daylights outside of the States. So the, you do get an impression that Dalton 
hadn't quite won the American audience over. And yeah. Do you, do you any idea why that might be the case? Whereas he seemed to be pretty popular the rest of the world. I don't know. I, I loved him. I thought he was great. You know, when they announced him, I remember watching Flash Gordon again uh, and thinking, you know, this guy is, is, is funny. He's debonair. He's great at action. I thought his, his living daylights was a was a classic Bond story where he oh, yeah. tried to show a little more emotion and a little bit com- more complexity than we're than we're used to. But I don't know. I don't feel like that the general public embraced him in the same way. And I was hoping with a third Bond mm. uh, it would have given him a chance to cement cement his reputation as well as as a well deserved and a, a a great Bond. I think you're right. I think actually, bizarrely as well, not just for his reputation at the time, but historically, people coming to Bond now, if you look back and someone only did two Bonds, you could draw a conclusion yeah. from that, that, that they weren't right or whatever. Whereas if they've done three, that shows a confidence in their actor. And uh, we we know the reasons there wasn't the third, but um, I'm, all of us guys here love yeah. Dog. License to Kill is my favourite Bond. It's yeah. Dog as well. And John's pretty high on your list as well. Oh, it's, it's my favourite film that of all just, time. Yeah, oh, yeah. <laughs> there you go. Yeah, so we're all, we're all huge fans of it, and and, yeah. and we all love daylights as well. So um, yeah, we find it hard to to judge. I mean, I'm a little bit older than these guys, so I I did see it at the cinema, License to Kill, and I just thought it was the best thing ever. But um, you just can't judge, you know, people's taste. It's um, it's a funny one. I think it was probably ahead of its time, going a bit darker like that. So so soon after Roger Moore, maybe. Yeah, I think I think you're right. I think people had a little bit um, where they were they weren't prepared for it. They they weren't prepared for it. I, I think you're right, and I think because the general public thinks that he didn't make a third because of financial reasons, mm. I think it's a it's a slight uh, unfortunate stain on his reputation. Yeah, it it, it 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 somehow frames him in a in, in a in a in a light which is not deserving. And then the other thing I'll just say is that. At that time, the American market for Bond, it was considered more important for Bond films to do well in America mm. than, than elsewhere. That was just the financial realities of filmmaking at the time, not just Bond, but with other films. Mm. Um, the thing, one thing to, and this is just, this might be useful information in general. A film, com- let's say a film costs $5 to make. And then you spend five dollars. So you made a movie. It costs five dollars. It costs five million. Um, and it comes out and it makes five million. Has your film done well? No. no. It's 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 a it's a financial failure. Why? Because your film also costs needed yeah. prints and advertising that was also equal to that five million. Yeah. So you need. So that's a ten million dollar film. So if you have if you if your film makes if your film costs ten million and makes. 10 million uh makes 5 million you're you're definitely closer to being a success but in america let's say 50% of that movie money goes back to the studio and mm. then the other 50% goes back to the theater now that's not completely true it's not exactly 50% it could be 60% for the first weekend but the longer it's in the theater the greater percentage goes to the theater owner mm. and that that number is is less advantageous to the theater to overseas so if your film is in america gets 50 percent to the studio 50 percent to the theaters more goes to the theaters overseas so the the 
ability to figure out how much did that film make is much more complicated to the outsiders like yeah. me. Yeah, looking in. Um, I just think I think it's just useful to know. Yeah. One of my favourite James Bond's book ever, honestly, genuinely. Absolutely. Oh, that's, that's so sweet. No, I absolutely love the book. One of my favourite books. The, 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 the third Timothy Dalton film has kept me up at night. Yeah. Uh, that's oh, it. yeah. it's, honestly, like, I, it's, it's one of the things I would have I adored. But I'm, I'm really glad at some of the stuff you said because, actually, I've got to say, when I read it in here, I actually came out thinking, I'm glad there wasn't a third one. <laughs> no, because, and, and I'll tell you why, right? And 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 now you clarified some stuff and I liked what you said about that kind of ambiguous nature of a Baron Samady character. I, I like that idea. The amazing thing, why I love Dalton so much is because he's got a two out of two record. He's not got a dud. And it's the idea that you're wanting more, you know, that, that, that listen, I desperately need more, but, when we talked to we talked to John Glenn a few years ago, and John Glenn made this point about how License to Kill was made specifically for Dalton. It was made, it, it was the fit around the character, and I just cannot get my head around Timothy Dalton fighting androids and robots. Do you know what I mean? That I I couldn't get my head around that. I'd come to the point where I'd made peace that I'm glad that film wasn't made. Um, <laughs> Does that, but no, no, I hear you. I mean, part of, I mean, for for many, many years, I had this weird, uh, I'll call it an obsession with the third unmade Dalton film, oh. and and I, I and for me, writing the book and looking at what could have been his third and what could have been his fourth, and an alternate version of his first, it, it provided a measure of closure for me, a quantum of solace. If yeah. <laughs> Very good. Now, you see, the fourth one, I was, the fourth one, I was like, oh, please make that tomorrow. That, yeah, I mean, that I was... feel like, yeah, but I mean, just hearing you talk, I was thinking, oh, well, I think you would have liked the fourth one, because the fourth one felt very Fleming. It felt like a a, a, a return to classic Bond. And yeah. then the alternate first one, would have been a James Bond origin story, and we would have he would have been partnered with a uh, a, a senior agent who would teach him the ropes and teach him all the skills that makes him the character that we that we love. That's sort of the the, the abbreviated potted history of three, four, and one. So good that. Getting into Star Wars territory with this, yeah, yeah, three, four, and one now, yeah. <laughs> Rob, you you've actually got your own unmade at the moment. Lost <laughs> James Bond adventure, haven't you? Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. If you want to cut, it, yeah, I I I have this sort of like right. Oh, how do you even begin with this one? So I I thought Mark that perhaps that the only two like right. So if I were to ask you. Of all the James Bonds and all the James Bond Bond women, which Bond and which woman do you see them setting settling down with, sort of like monogamously in a long term relationship to see out the end of their days? When I thought about it like that, I only came up with one answer. Who'd you come up with? Dalton's Bond and Pam. Oh, that's nice. Under the specific circumstances that after License to Kill, they had an agreement like. Hey, look! You're a CIA, CIA plane rider, plane pilot. <laughs> I'm like a flipping secret agent. In thirty years, if we're not doing out, you're kind of cool. Why don't we just, you know, like we'll get together, kind of thing. So I've been writing this thing where they're <laughs> together 
and they're both in their 60s in the Caribbean and Bond's got a boat rental business. <laughs> I'm having a really nice time doing it. <laughs> <laughs> and I'm not sure anyone will ever read it. <laughs> but I'm really enjoying it. And it's it's really nice, you know? It's nice. Like a wish fulfillment kind of thing. Oh. Awesome. <laughs> yeah. Of course, Dalton was never really truly in the running for Goldeneye. I know Cubby wanted him to do it, but yeah. it was Cubby against the studios and the studios had the money, so he was never going to win. Um, but actually, um, although I prefer Dalton as a Bond to, to Pierce Brosnan, I think I, I don't think anybody could have played Bond better in Goldeneye no. than no, Pierce no, Brosnan did. There are really. scenes in that film that I genuinely think only Pierce could have done yeah. that well. Yeah. Yeah. Now, admittedly, they obviously wrote it to suit him, but so I, I wouldn't replace... Pierce is what I'm saying to get a third Dalton film in, in Goldeneye because nope. Pierce was in that first Bond yeah. film, absolutely yeah. outstanding. Yeah, I think he's very good in that. I think Pierce Brosnan's always been good as an actor in the Bond films. Yeah, uh, even if sometimes the the films are not yeah. always what we would want for him. But I I also think that it's good that he didn't play Bond in Living Daylights. I don't yeah. think he was quite ready yet. Even though at that time I wanted him to play Bond. Because I was a fan of his in Remington Steel, he was originally cast and they couldn't yeah. do it. So I think we got each t- actor at the time they should have played. Pierce is, is a good actor, but I don't think he could have brought that intensity that that Tim did to no. those no. angry scenes, you know, at the fair and such like in the day in daylight. So you're right. I, th- I think you're absolutely the nail on the head. We got both actor- actors at the right time. We've we've talked about this kind of thing on our podcast before because obviously on social media you get a lot of oh imagine if Bro- Dalton did. Goldeneye and we kind of come to the conclusion that no we're glad for the actors that we got in yeah. every single one what we'd actually want is what if there was a Dalton third film what if there was a Brosnan fifth film what if in between on a Majesty's Secret Service and Diamonds are Forever there was the Lazenby Revenge film you know those are the yeah. things that keep me excited yeah. definitely I yeah. yeah I would have loved to have seen that Lazenby uh, Revenge film that's too bad we didn't get it I asked um Tom Mankiewicz about that in for Live and Let Die. How come Bond isn't really excuse me, in Diamonds Are Forever, I apologize. Yeah, yeah. How come Bond isn't really seeking revenge on Blofeld? I mean, he, there's a pre-title sequence where he's like, you know, where's Blofeld and he kills him. But Tom Mankiewicz said that they didn't want to confuse Sean Connery's return in Diamonds Are Forever with George Lazenby's loss in Honor Majesty's Secret yeah. Service. Was like, okay, mm. that makes sense. I get you. I get it. Uh, yeah, because it's it's going. It's the only one that goes back, isn't it? Yeah. It's the only one that's in the whole series where you had a run of Sean, then you get a new actor. I know we're going back, and particularly after the biggest thing that ever happens to Bond in the books, yeah. it would have been a bit weird. Yeah, you're right. I haven't thought about that. It would have been weird to see him still mourning when you've had such an effective. Yeah. Another actor's loss. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And the way they do it, I think, not necessarily in that one, but in the Timothy, Dal- the Timothy Dalton ones, in uh, The Spy I Love Me, there's just a few little lines thrown in where yeah. you know, he was married, married, died, like, all right, you've made it, you know. That, to me, is enough to say, this is the same character. I don't need to imagine Roger Moore at the side of the, the road with, with Tracy in his arms, but I now completely buy that he's the same character and he still has that haunting him. And I think that that's why it works so well with these ones. Yeah, absolutely. Oh, James, I wanted you to have something. You know the tradition? The next one who catches this is the next one who... No. Thanks, Stella. It's time I left. 
Oh, James. <laughs> He was married once, but it was a long time ago. Going back to what we said about the missing ones, every actor, apart from George and Tim, they've had their run. You know, by the end of... Mm. Even by the end of You Only Live Twice, you could say, that's fine, you know, we've, we've seen Sean in five brilliant films, in my opinion. We don't necessarily need to have him in any more. I know we got Diamonds, and I love that film, but it... You know, it was a return for the sake of return, wasn't it? Then Roger, by the end, was was getting old. We'd seen him, you know, we'd seen him grow. We'd, he'd grown into the character. Pierce, yes, I would have liked him to do more, but four films is a good is a good return. And he would have been in his fifties, wouldn't he? By the time in that short period of time as well. Yeah, it felt it whizzed along, but it when I suppose we were teenagers then. I was. Hmm. It felt longer maybe when we were growing up. And then, of course, Daniel Gray had nearly two decades. No, well, it's still going on, isn't it? So there's no, it's only really, because because George is a one-off, that film, there's only Tim, who I think has got the real unfinished business to me. Mm. And, had, and it's also because of that five-year gap. Okay, nowadays, five years is, is a nice little break, isn't it, for them? But five years then was a massive gap without a Bond film. Yeah, I mean, I think with, with, with Lazenby, you saw what he was going to bring to the role. There, you, you, he, he found it. He, I, I really like his performance. Oh yeah, yeah, I, I love it. And I think you got a sense of what he was going to do with the role, and would, would have sort of assumed that he would have done the same, yeah. similar things moving forward. But with Dalton, there was still a question of what, what is that chemistry? What, what is, what, what do we get next? Yeah. Because part of his performance was dictated by the the plot. Once you've got a revenge plot, you can have lighter moods for your for your hero, but they got they're a little bit in the revenge mode, and that dictates your performance or Dawn's performance. It'd be really interesting to see him in a sort of in inverted commas a more normal mission, with perhaps you know Pushkin could have returned. Oh, you know you still have had Desmond Llewellyn. Caroline Bliss would have still been there. Yeah. Robert, uh, Robert, Robert Brown. Robert yeah. Brown as M. Felix Leiter, perhaps I quite like that that's the end arc for David Hedison's Felix Leiter. So, and, and Felix, it doesn't need to be in every film anyway. But just to see him interact with those characters and then who knows, someone like Anthony Hopkins as the baddie. I know these aren't even thick. I know, well, Anthony Hopkins is someone who's in features prominently, doesn't he, in Lost Bond Adventures. Yeah. Uh, mm-hmm. It's something that will always nag me, but John's put me at peace now, saying that that. that... Yeah, I mean, I think I, I agree. I think we got the, the 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 projects that we were meant to get. Oh, it's so exciting, isn't it? What writing project is next for you? I'm working on something. I'm working on two things now that I'm not quite ready to talk about. I'm I'm, I'm always working on something. Yeah. Okay. Okay. <laughs> Is this going to be like a 10-year project or something a little... Gosh, I hope not. Is it, is it going to be... It's intended to be a two-year project. Is it okay. fifth part of franchises? It is. <laughs> I'll be up for that. <laughs> hey, man. Well, real pleasure to meet you and a real fan of your work. And I really look forward to adding the new book to my coffee table. The Edlitz coffee table, possibly. <laughs> right. Well, thank you, Mark, very much for joining us. Really well, I'm, really, I'm, I'm really delighted to be here. Thank you all for taking the time to talk to me. I, I had a, a lot of fun, and um, so thank you. 
No, Frankie. Great, great to talk to you. Great to talk to someone who, who loves the films we love and has done yeah just terrific research on on, on all the books. And um, I, I'm I'm going to get a copy of the Dolls and because I've not read that yet. But I, I did. I absolutely love movies. Go forth. There's. Uh, as Rob said, you can you can see your love of movies as you yeah. as you turn the pages. So so thank you for the work you've done. It's great. Thank yeah. you so much for everything you shared. Really really exciting, and I cannot wait to read the Lost Adventures of Austin Powers. <laughs> <laughs> you might have to write that one. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Hey, folks, I'm Mark Marin from the WTF podcast, and this episode is brought to you by Kleenex Ultra Soft Tissues, your ally to help tackle your allergy symptoms this season. I love the change of seasons, but nobody loves pollen and all those other things floating in the air that make you sneeze during this nice weather. Kleenex Ultra Soft Tissues are hypoallergenic and allergist approved. So fight back against watery eyes and runny noses without worrying about irritating your skin. For this allergy, Allergy season, grab Kleenex and face allergies head on. If you're looking for plump lips that last, you need to know about Juvederm Lip Fillers. With Juvederm Volbella XC and Juvederm Ultra XC, your lip look, whether it's subtle or bold, can last up to one full year with optimal treatment and no additional maintenance. Find a licensed specialist and see if it's right for you at Juvederm.com today. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Add fullness to lips in adults over 21 with Juvederm Volbella XC or Juvederm Ultra XC. Do not use if you have severe allergies or a history of severe allergic reactions, or if you you're allergic to lidocaine or the proteins used in Juvederm. Tell your doctor if you have a history of scarring or taking medicines that decrease the body's immune response or that can prolong bleeding. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. As with all fillers, there's a rare risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. For full, important safety information, visit Juvederm.com. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High-quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365 day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.